this is always stressful for me when I come and speak at Crusade. And my wife says, why do you stress out about this so much? I say, honey, you don't understand. This is a tough crowd. And it's a crowd where you have to think about what's relevant, what's really going on in your life. What do you want to hear about that's going to make a difference in your world? And, you know, my wife, she's an incredibly godly woman. And she says, honey, you just need to pray about it. And, and you just whatever's going on in your life. Whatever you're curious about, whatever's pertinent in your life, whatever issues about God you're trying to discover, maybe that's what they want to hear. So I thought, I think you're onto something, right? But then this turned out to be like kind of a horrible day. I'm sitting in my office. I'm finishing up my talk. I decided to speak tonight on Lady Gaga, man or woman. And I thought, man, that's relevant. That's kind of what everybody's wondering. So, but as she calls me, she says, I don't think you can talk on that. So I quickly had to change topics. I'm getting in my car. As I get in my car, I split out the back of my pants. And I'm like, nothing's going right. So I'm just going to sit down tonight. But it's cool because I thought I was going to be in Reynolds. This way, at least I get a breeze as we're sitting out here tonight. But I want to talk to you for a few minutes. One of my favorite verses is John 10, 10, where Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. But I really like what the American Standard said. I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. And, and what I've learned in this spiritual journey of following Jesus Christ, that many times, whether or not I'm going to experience the abundant life, is dependent on my willingness to be obedient to God and to trust God and to walk by faith in my life on my journey with Jesus Christ, whether it makes any sense whatsoever. And you hear that, and maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe you've been in crusade for a while, you're really plugged into your crusade, and you think, well, Mike, what's the big deal about that? Well, you may think about it. Uh, when you're studying God's Word, you're hearing it, you're reading it, sometimes you come across something in the Bible, and, and it's just so easy to take it at face value. And then sometimes you're studying God's word and maybe you get into one of the Pauline epistles or you're reading something and you're like, you know, you know that's not going to be so easy to appropriate or to apply to my life. I'll give you an example. Uh, most of us, we're all about this idea of being totally and unconditionally forgiven by God. I mean, when we hear this concept, it is like a breath of fresh air to us to think that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross for us to raise victoriously from the grave three days later. And if we will appropriate that uh, Jesus' sacrifice in our lives, God can look at us and totally and unconditionally forgive us regardless of what we've done. And I think that's awesome. Not only does he forgive us, he forgives us of everything we've ever done, everything we're getting ready to do, and everything that we'll ever do in the future. In fact, the psalmist says that he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west, and he can't even remember them anymore. He chooses not to recall them, which... God would make a great wife, by the way. But, uh, you know, he says that he's going to do this for us. And most of us, we hear that and we think, I'm all about that. that I, want, I want that. I'm going to appropriate that into my life. But one day, I'm, you know, I'm having my quiet time. I'm reading through the book of Ephesians, maybe. And I get to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And I read, hey, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am now supposed to forgive those around me totally and unconditionally in the same way that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven me. And I read that and I'm like, man, I don't, I, I don't know that I can take that at face value. I mean, that's a lot to ask. I'm going to have to think through the ramifications of that statement because I've been screwed over by a lot of people. I've been hurt by a lot of people. I've been abused by a lot of people. But now I'm reading in God's word that I'm supposed to allow those people back into my life and I'm to for forgive them as God has forgiven me. I'm going to have to take that under advisement. So we kind of keep that truth at arm's length. It's easier said than done. You know, another one, we're reading through the Bible, it's pretty clear. The Bible says no sex outside of marriage. Sex is a beautiful thing. God created it. He said, but I created it for a man and a woman in the context of a marriage relationship. But you know, as you're reading through the Bible and you come across that, you look at that and you think, I wonder if that's what it really says in the original language. I wonder if that's what it really says in the Greek. I mean, after all, when you think about it, that kind of idea, no sex outside of marriage, uh, it's, it's a little old-fashioned, it's outdated, it's unreasonable. In fact, it doesn't even make any practical sense. I mean, the reality is, 
you wouldn't even buy a car without taking it for a test drive. You know what I'm saying, right? So you're thinking, you're asking me to commit to someone, to marry them, to be committed for the rest of my life without finding out before we get married if we're going to be sexually compatible. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. That's just dumb. My point is sometimes... It, you know, we'll come across a biblical truth or we'll come across some kind of biblical principle or precept and it doesn't make sense to us. And so we just so nonchalantly say, I just don't think I'm going to apply that in my life. And if that's where you find yourself this evening, uh, there's a couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. You got to see because it really explains what the problem, what the tension is all about. It says this, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways, my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And I read those verses, and I think, what do those verses tell me? Well, those verses basically tell us, as human beings, God has a way of doing things that don't always fit into our little world. God has a way of doing things that don't always fit into the little box of how we think things should be done. And if you look at verse 8, it tells us it's because God doesn't think like we think. Well, that shouldn't be a shock. But the prophet says, you know, God has thoughts that aren't like our thoughts. He has ways that aren't like our ways. God has ideas about life that aren't like our ideas about life. And when we come across one of these principles or truths in God's word and we realize it's, it's different, it doesn't make sense to us. It's during those times we find ourselves on a slippery slope as we're choosing. Am I going to obey this principle or I'm going to choose because it doesn't make sense to me. I can't fit it into my little logical world. I'm going to prove I'm going to choose to ignore this principle. What I want to talk about this evening, and boy, if you can get this under your belt, not only are you going to have a phenomenal year, you're going to have a phenomenal life. You'll never end up in my office if you can just look. It's this idea of obeying God, the importance of obeying God, whether it makes any sense to you whatsoever, because he's God and you're not. Now, I want to look at a story, and we'll kind of zip right through it, 2 Kings chapter 5. And uh, just so you understand, this is a story that took place in Israel. And it's a time in Israel's history. You know, they didn't have the written word of God. They couldn't just go to the sign of the fish and pick up a Bible. So when God spoke, he spoke through men who were known as prophets. And at this time in this story, the prophet is Elisha. Not Elijah. Don't be confused. Elisha. But he's not our main character. You have to go to verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5 to discover our main character. It's a guy named Naaman. And it's interesting. You read a little bit about him and you discover that, first of all, he's not a Jew and he's not from Israel. He's a guy that's from Aram, and Aram is what we know today as Syria, but Aram is, is Israel's hated and dreaded enemy. But you also discover in verse 1 that he is the commander of the king's army of Aaron. In other words, he is like the king's right-hand man, and you think life must be great. He's got everything going on in his life. But if you continue to read in verse 1, you find out that his life was far from perfect because the last part of verse 1 tells us, gives us a little insight into his life. It says, even though he was this great military leader, he also suffered from leprosy. Now, we don't deal with leprosy a lot. We just had 31 of our high schoolers get back from India where they ministered in a leper colony, and it's still a disease that is very much alive on planet Earth. But we don't experience it or deal with it much here in the United States. But you know what leprosy is like. It's one of those diseases where eventually your limbs begin to fall off, and your nose will fall off, and your earlobes will swell and fall off. And not treated, it is fatal. And I can only imagine what it was like for Naaman, this great military commander, one day to walk out of the shower, and as he's drying off, he sees a little spot maybe on his abdomen or maybe on his elbow or his hand, and he gets a little closer inspection, and he recognizes it because he's seen leprosy before, and he realizes at that moment everything has changed. He knows it is terminal. He realizes, I am a dead man walking. And my guess is that everything that he's ever accomplished militarily 
Everything that he's, all the metal that, that he's had hanging from his chest because of great battles that suddenly seemed unimportant. But what's interesting is you read this story out of the blue, right? And how often this guy just come out of the blue with something in our lives. This is out of the blue. There's this little servant girl who comes across Naaman's path. It says in verse 2, Now bands from Aram, they'd gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. Now we don't know how long this little girl has been captive in Aram, but she had been in Israel long enough that she knew there's a great prophet in Israel. She knew his name was Elisha. Now, Naaman has no idea who Elisha is. I mean, he doesn't, know, he doesn't know Elisha from a lizard. And even if he did, who cares? I mean, what does a great military commander care about some unknown Jewish uh, 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 prophet over in Israel? But you'll notice it says right here, she says, you know, if, if, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria. Here's the deal. Here's the kicker. He could cure Naaman. He could cure your husband. And you know that the minute the wife heard this, she made a beeline straight for her husband. And she says, honey, you're not going to believe this. I was talking to my maid today and she told me that there's somebody over in Israel. We don't know, but she knows. And if somehow you can get there and you can, you can track this guy down. She says, I don't know. Maybe he's like a witch doctor. He's got some kind of magical power. But she says, if you can just get there, this guy can heal you. So verse 4 says, Naaman goes to the king of Aram and, and he says, man, this is what my, my wife's maid told to me today. And the king responds in verse 5, by all means go. I mean, you got to go. In fact, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So notice what Naaman does. He left taking with him 10 talents of silver. And I did a little calculations in today's economy. He took about a half million dollars in silver, 6,000 shekels of gold. That's like $4 million and 10 sets of clothing. So he goes out to South Point, runs into Nordstrom, picks out 10 of the finest suits, you know, and he gets four and a half million dollars worth of gold and silver, 10 great suits, packs them in the back of a U-Haul, heads off for Israel. And you get to verse six, it says, the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so you may cure him of his leprosy. But according to verse seven, when the king of Israel gets this letter, I mean, he absolutely starts freaking out. In fact, it says he tore his robe. He said, am I God? Can I kill and bring him back to life? Why does this fellow, referring to the king of Aaron, send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? He knows I can't cure anybody of leprosy. There is no cure for leprosy. And then he thinks this. It's pretty clear what's going on. He's just trying to pick a fight with me. He's just figuring out how to have a quarrel with us, how he can invade us and wipe us off the map. In other words, Naaman's going to go back. You know, he's going to come down here. He's going to ask for a cure. We can't cure him. He's going to go back to Aram. He's going to go in before the king. The king's going to all excitedly say, how did it go, right? And about that time, his arm's going to fall off. And he says, I don't know. What do you think, you know? And that's all the king's going to need to invade Israel and just wipe them out. He's just trying to pick a fight with us. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, he says, King, quit stressing out about this. Send the guy to me. I'll show him a trick or two. Verse 9, Naaman went with his horse and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And he just stands there. He just sits there because there's one thing you need to know about leprosy in the Old Testament. You were considered unclean. You were an outcast. You were totally isolated. In fact, once you had the disease, you had a moral obligation. If anyone got within 50 feet of you, you had to say, unclean, unclean, unclean. In other words, don't come any closer. You're not going to like it. You're going to live to regret it. And so he's thinking, I can't even go in this house. So he's standing there and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And he's thinking, man, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. This is the moment of truth. I mean, he's thinking, go big or go home. This is all on the line. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, 
go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, you got to picture this scene. Here's Naaman pulling up in front of Elisha's house. He's got this U-Haul. He's got four and a half million dollars worth of gold and silver. He's got all these clothes. He's ready to pay for his way. He's not asking for a free lunch. He's not looking for a free ride. And here's Elijah, Elisha, who's not even willing to come out and stand before this military commander. And, and you read that Elisha, I mean, that Naaman ends up speaking not to Elisha, but to his assistant. And his assistant basically waddles out, you know, and says, hey, here's the deal. Go down the Jordan River, dip seven times, you'll be fine. Waddles back in and shuts the door. And that's the end of it. And you read in verse 11 that Naaman is absolutely beside himself. He is ticked off. He is so angry because in his mind, this isn't how it was going to go down. This isn't, what, this isn't how it was going to play out. In fact, he says in verse 11, I thought it would go down this way. I mean, have you ever, you ever been in that situation as a follower of Jesus Christ? You know, you, you pack up, you're going off to NC State, the future is bright, and you only get here to find that, you know, you got a roommate, and, you know, he or she's a stalker, and they don't shower, and they never sleep, and they're always in your stuff, and, you know, and, and you go to class, and it's a lot harder than you thought it was going to be, and then one day you get a call from home, and your mom or your dad, they got laid off in this economy, and they tell you, if you want to stay in school, you're probably going to have to find a part-time job, and you're barely making the great as it is and you're thinking man this isn't the way i thought it was going to be or, or you come to school and you meet somebody and like finally this is the person that completes you this is the person that you've dreamed about all of your life right and you begin this relationship and you begin to see yourself this is the person i'm going to spend the rest of my life with but all of a sudden maybe there are character flaws that begin to develop and this person that you thought you love more than anybody else in the world now you hate more than anybody else in the world and you thought man i didn't think it was going to be this way that's what, that's what Naaman's thinking. He thought, I didn't think it would go down this way. This is not how I envisioned it. I, 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 I thought he would at least come out, right? I thought he would at least stand in front of me and call on the name of the Lord his God. I thought he would at least kind of wave his hand over my spot and, and cure me of this leprosy. In other words, I thought he would come out and maybe bring a wand or some fairy dust and do a little hocus pocus, or a little abracadabra. And, you know, I'd pay him. I'd give him the gold, the silver, the clothes, and I'd be heading home. I'd be healthy and my life's ahead of me. He says, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Go dunk in the Jordan River. What in the world does this have to do with leprosy? And then he gets a little uppity in verse 12. By the way, aren't Abana and far part of the rivers of Damascus, aren't they better than the waters of Israel? Why couldn't I just go wash in one of those waters? I mean, you know, and why would I put my body, why would I subject my body to the muddy Jordan River when I go home and we got some really clean, cool rivers there? It's kind of like, why in the world would I go to Carolina when I could go to state, right? You know, or why in the world, why in the world would I live in Fuquay when I can live in Cameron? You know, those kinds of, you know, those kinds of conversations, right? A little uppity there. So he's, so it says in verse 12, he just left. He went home and he's in a rage. He is just so mad. You know what he's thinking? This is stupid. This makes no sense whatsoever. I brought all this money, all these outfits. I've really gone out of the way. I've gone the extra mile. And he's just telling me, go duck in the Jordan River seven times. Who is this redneck prophet think he is? But as he makes that U-turn and he's heading back off to Aram, this is what's really cool. This is a cool part of the story. One of his servants works up the courage and says, I got to talk to this guy. Verse 13, my father, let me just talk to you for a second. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? Naaman, think about this for a second. If that guy would have come out and he said, you need to go back home and you need to bring back $10 million worth of gold and silver and 20 new suits, would you have done it? Naaman says, yeah, I probably would have done it. What if he would have come out and said, you go home, you watch one year of reruns of Glee. That's what you got to do. And you come back and I'll heal you. Would you have done it? He's like, mm, 
Yeah, I guess I would have done it. What if he just said, you have to go to a Justin Bieber concert and stay through the entire concert? Would you have done it? I don't know about it. Yeah, I guess I would have done it. So then he says, well, what's the big problem here? Why don't you go do what he tells you? How much more than when he tells you, just wash and be clean? What do you have to lose? Get your butt down to the Jordan River, dip it seven times, see what happens. And I'm impressed with this teachable spirit because verse 14 He went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored. It became clean like that of a young boy. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's an incredible, awesome story. But here's the thing. If that would have been most of us who have been Christians for a while, you know what our first response would have been? Our our first response would have been, how in the world can I figure out how to bottle and sell this miracle water? I mean, think about it. All the lepers there are in the world, no cure whatsoever. I mean, if I could bottle this stuff, if I could get it on QVC, and if I could market it over the internet, and if I could get some poor, starving state students to maybe go door to door in the summer and sell this stuff, I mean, this could be a gold mine, right? But then you would miss the story because the story isn't about the water that he dipped in. It's not about the place where he had to go dip. It's not even about the details of seven times. The story, the core of this story is about Naaman doing exactly what God said through the prophet Elisha that brings the change in his life. It's not knowing about it. It's not studying about it. It's not sitting around in a small group or a class and talking about it. It's about trusting God enough to do what he says. It's about trusting God enough to say, this makes no sense to me whatsoever, but I'm going to be obedient. And the reason I'm going to be obedient is because you're God and I'm not. So I'm going to do what you said. And until Naaman obeyed, That's when he was made well. And he would have never have known that special connection, that special moment with God if he hadn't have been obedient. And I think herein lies one of the biggest frustrations, we'll call it that, in the Christian life. It's what I call the the gap, uh, the gap problem, the gap issue. It's it's not an issue if you shop at Gap, although that may be an issue. It's it's a different gap. It's this gap of, uh, of, of between what we know we should do, what the Bible tells us we should do, but what we actually do. It's that gap between knowing that we should love one another as Christ has had loved us and actually loving one another that way. Sometimes there's a big gap there, right? It's that gap between knowing that we should forgive one another as Jesus Christ has forgiven us and actually being able to forgive one another that way. It's that big gap sometimes between knowing that we should be sexually pure, but actually being sexually pure. Now, this isn't new because this is an issue that James addressed in the book of James centuries ago when he wrote this in James chapter 1 verse 22 he said do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself look at that last phrase do what it says and what's interesting in in the Greek uh, this original word that James uses for listen or listeners it was referred to in the first it was it was used in the first century to refer to someone who was auditing a class Do do you still audit classes these days can you do that well, when I was in undergrad and grad school, you'd have people who would audit your class. And you could always tell who was auditing the class because they could care less what was going on. They're sitting in the back of the class. They're drawing. They're doodling. They're taking notes. You guys would be texting or tweeting or whatever you do these days. And you don't really care because you're thinking, man, I'm just, I'm just chilling. I'm just auditing the class. It doesn't matter whether I get anything out of it or not. I think in the same way. Probably a lot of you that are sitting here getting back to this fresh start this year. You probably attend church regularly. You may never miss crusade. Maybe you're involved in a Bible study somewhere on campus. But you know, if you're being honest with yourself, you're just auditing Christianity. And what I mean by that is you know it, you're hearing it, but you're not applying what you're learning. James says, don't do that. Don't deceive yourself. And it's interesting. This Greek word James uses 
for deceit, it means you arrive at a you arrive at a conclusion by false reasoning. You're deceiving yourself because you're arriving to a conclusion by a false reasoning. And I think what he's saying is it's false reasoning to think that you're going to become everything God designed you to be. It's false reasoning to think that you're going to become everything that God created you to be without obeying what you're learning from his word. You have to be obedient to what you know. You have to figure out what does it mean to me and how do I appropriate it to my life, whether or not it makes any sense to me whatsoever. You know, it's interesting. Nike has gotten rich off of a slogan. What's Nike's slogan? Just do it. Don't talk about exercising. Do it. Don't talk about getting in shape. Do it. Don't talk about you're going to compete at a high level. Get out there and do it. And you probably heard that. But what's interesting, Nike, the word Nike is also a Greek word. It means victory. And I thought, how, 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 how cool is that? That in the same way, when it comes to our spiritual journey, our relationship with Jesus Christ, that when we get to that point where we're just willing to do it, we're just willing to be obedient, whether it makes any sense to us whatsoever, we can begin to experience those victories where we've never had victory in our lives before. But it begins with obedience. One more thing I want you to see in the story that I'm done. Here's verse 15. Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. So after he's cured, he gets his little posse together. He goes back to Elisha. It says he stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Now, you got to understand up to this time, this time in history, you know, there was a rain God and a sun God and a bird dog, a uh, bird God, a bird dog. There's bird dogs, too, which uh, reminds me. Let me see if I can remember my favorite joke. What happens if you cross a um, uh, uh, let me think of it now. Um, what is it when you can't sleep, Todd? Insomnia, dyslexic, and you're an atheist. You lay, a, you lay awake at night wondering if there really is a dog. Okay, that uh, sucks. I'm sorry. But anyway, I got some better ones, but they're not clean. But anyway, you know, there's sun gods, dirt god, rain gods. All these, he said, well, all those gods are a joke. There's only one real God, and that's the God of Israel. Now, here's my point, and I'm going to wrap it up. My guess is that for some of you, there is an encounter with God right out there in your future. I mean, there is an encounter with God with your name on it. It is just waiting to happen. But just like with Naaman, it is probably going to require you to be obedient in some area of your life to God, even though it makes no logical sense to you right now whatsoever. But this is what I'll promise you. If you will choose to step out and trust God and obey him and follow him, you will experience God like you have never experienced him before. You will be connected to God in a way you've never been connected before. And it's because there is a special connection that happens in our relationship with God that only happens and we only experience when we are obedient to him and we trust him and it makes no sense. We go in and blindly say, God, it doesn't make sense to me, but I know this is what you're telling me to do, so I'm going to be obedient. Some of you are right on the doorstep of that kind of experience. The same kind of revelation that Naaman experienced in this chapter. For some of you, it's as simple as just making that decision to finally follow Jesus Christ. To experience what he did for you. You've listened about it. You've read about it. You've studied about it. You've sat around in groups and you've talked about it. You know what you need to do. You just got to decide to do it. 
For some of you, maybe it's, it's, it's stepping out and doing something that you know God is calling you to do, but you're a little afraid to do it, so you're just kind of putting it off. I mean, for example, it might be God is talking to you about changing your major because he's got a whole different direction that he wants you to go in life. But you know the major you're in, you, you like it, it's in your belt, it's in your wheelhouse, and it's a little scary to go in the other direction. Or maybe, he, maybe he's saying that he wants you to transfer to another university because he's got a whole different plan for you. Or maybe he's saying he wants you to take a year out of school and he wants you to be involved in a mission experience that's going to absolutely revolutionize your life. And you know God's been speaking to you, but you're holding him off and you're hesitating because you want God to fill in all the gaps. You want God to give you all the details exactly how it's going to go down. You want all your ducks in a row. You want every T crossed. You want every I dotted. But what I've discovered in my life is usually when God is speaking to us, often God has given us already all the information we're going to get. Now it's a matter of we're going to be. 17 years ago, I've lived in California with my wife, two kids, the great life, beautiful house, pool in the backyard, pastoring a phenomenal church, going to Hawaii every summer. It's a short trip from, Cali- a short trip from California. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day God just speaks to my heart and says, I want you to go back to North Carolina where you're from, and I want you to start a church. And I'm thinking, what do you mean by that? Because that means starting life all over, going back to the very beginning, just like when we got married. I mean, it's going to be crazy. And I asked my wife, we were having dinner. I said, honey, you want to move to North Carolina and start a church? She said, nope. And I said, okay, God, there you have. That's pretty much closed on that. And I began to pray, God, if you want us to do this, you're going, she's, she's a rebel. So God, you're going to have to really convict her. You know what I'm saying? About nine months later, she says, do you still think about it? And I say, yeah, but there's no use to think about it if you're not interested. And it opened up the dialogue. And within a couple of weeks, I resigned my ministry in California. We sold our home. We packed up our U-Haul. We moved back to Cary. We rented this little 900-square-foot, two-bedroom apartment. My kids went to public school for the first time ever. My wife had to go back to work in the RTP so we could have some benefits. I went back into construction after sitting at a desk for years and going to seminary. I worked construction three to four days a week. And on the side began this journey of starting Hope Community Church. And I got to tell you, every day I was thinking, God, is this what you had in store for me? God, I did what you wanted me to do. Is this the plan you have for me? And you know what? It took two or three years before we even got 100 people together. And I was still working construction. And I thought, you know, my job is to be obedient to what God has called me to, whether the church is always going to be 100 people or whether it's going to be 10,000 people. That's not my problem. My problem is just being obedient. And now I look back every week and I see the thousands of people that come, people that come through our doors and the lives that are saved and the lives that are changed and the ministry that we're able to do all over the world. In the next couple of weeks, I'll be in Uganda with the orphans and then in Haiti where we're building a hospital. And then I'm going to be in the Congo in January where our church is reaching out and building churches and making disciples all over the world. I, I would have missed all of that if I would have said, God, I'll do it, but you got to fill in all the gaps first. And God says, I just don't work that way. For some of you, it has to do with the relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. And God is saying, you know, you should, it's not a healthy relationship. It's not a good relationship. And, he, and you're thinking, but yeah, if I get out of this relationship, what's it going to be like? And am I going to be happy? And does God have someone else for me? Or am I going to spend the rest of my life lonely? And here's the deal. You've probably gotten all the explanation you're going to get from God. Now it comes down to, are you going to trust him enough because he's God to be obedient? Nike, just do it. Adidas has come out with a new slogan. I'm all in. And I think this is what God is looking for. I think he's looking for people, for young people who want to change the world, who want to be difference makers, who are willing to say, God, I don't know what this means. And I don't know where you're going to take me, but God, I am all in. So my question would be, as you begin this new year, that is so full of promise. An opportunity. 
Search your heart and ask yourself this question. God, when it comes to my relationship, am I all in? I mean, can you, are you to that point in your life where you can say, God, if you reveal it to me in your word, if you speak to my heart, I'm going to obey it, God, because you're God. And because you're God, you don't need to explain yourself to me. One of my favorite verses in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says this. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Are you? I mean, that's, that's really what it's all about. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the journey that you take us on, the adventure of a lifetime, the abundant life that you have promised us. But Father, help us to understand it simply comes back to are we willing to be obedient? I think of, I think of Peter after the resurrection when Jesus said, follow me. And he turned and looked at John and he says, what about him? And Jesus said, you follow me. You don't worry about him. Father, I pray that we can get to that point where we are walking so closely with you like David. Our heart is in step with you. We're people after your heart. And if you move to the left, we go to the left. And if you veer off to the right, we go to the right because we're so in tune with what you're doing. And you take us on that journey to become the person, the individual, the man, the woman to be and accomplish and do all that you created us to be and to accomplish and do. And you get the glory for that, not us. In your name we pray. Amen.